I do believe we're at a flexion point in time where we can make the difference now and we have to stand up and know that this is a deadly disease that we have to take it seriously and there are therapies in hand that we can start applying. Those will be the build towards improvement in other therapies to come. The time is now to really think about how to prevent and treat food allergies. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Stanford professor Carrie Nadeau lives the life, some would say the dream, of what Judah Folkman has called the inquisitive physician. Integrating her deep knowledge of chemistry, her experience in biotech drug development, her clinical acumen, and her deeply felt compassion for patients to bring the best of medicine and science to children with food allergies. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, David. Yes, Lisa? You're so weird, dude. Um, you have been running around uh, talking up the book Range. I know I'm now, I now this is a book about the, the dichotomy between depth and, ex, and specialization versus broad-based knowledge. And I'm just wondering how you, why you like this book so much is are you just covering up for your own dilettantism? Uh, you got me. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, the world's worst kept secret. Um, well, it's actually funny because in the New York Times review of the book, I mean, that's what they were sort of actually, to your exact point, they're so on top of things, Lisa. Um, that's kind of what they were asking. They're saying, oh, is this essentially this like, you know, inc- long way of saying, oh, it's okay to be a dilettante? And I, I really don't think that's the case. I think essentially the point is that as people... The people have a very view of success. He, he, he invokes the, this David Epstein, the author, invokes the concept of, you know, like the tiger parent and also Tiger Woods. The idea is that you should start becoming at a very, very young age. Exact, a tiger. A tiger. Well, you should know exactly what you're doing and, you know, stay on course and train and, you know, and that's the, you know, to stay on target, stay on target, stay on target. Um, and like that's the way to be, you know, to be successful. And I think he's sort of trying to say, okay, you know, that actually many of the people who are successful, even in the fields that they, that you know, he, he, and he gives examples from every domain, from sports um, uh, to music, you know, to, to composers, to performers, to jazz musicians, to in every area of life really actually didn't really follow that model and how there's so much um, importance and value in actually being exactly not like that. I mean, eventually, you, know, you, got, you, know, you actually have to focus a bit and, you know, to practice and get stuff done. But the idea that you should sort of pick something and then sort of do it versus Doing more exploration the to Jackson try to find model. a better, that's right, <laughs> better match fit. It's called um, anyway, and the value of lateral thinking. I thought it's an extraordinary book. You know, I keep hearing about how apparently it's a VC thing to do to have some mantra to have some book that you hand out to everyone in your office and everyone, all these VCs in Silicon Valley seem to give out some book from the Santa Fe Institute um, <laughs> be, you know, to emphasize their interesting complexity. So I think if I had to give out a book, this is the one I would choose. Interesting. I'd probably give out a comic book myself. But anyways. All right. So um, uh, somebody who has both depth and breadth, I am particularly thrilled to welcome Carrie Nadeau to the show. I first got to know Carrie as a colleague a few years ahead of me in the MD-PhD program, a rock star chemist and an uncommonly decent human being. 
She's expanded her repertoire well beyond chemistry at this point, as I'm sure we'll discuss, but she remains not only one of the smartest, but also most decent and good human beings I know. I guess she and MD-PhD classmate Matai Mammon, now head of research at J&J, really stand out in my mind. And maybe they're saying about chemistry because Janelle Anderson, who trained at the Whitesides lab, is also a standout in this regard. In any case, um, we are beyond delighted to welcome to our program, Carrie. So glad you were able to join us. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. So, Kari, I appreciate you were born in New Hampshire, and then when you were four, your family moved to Jersey. Your mom was a public health nurse, and your dad worked for the EPA. And you said they really imbued you, I think you said, with a sense of service. Could you tell us about that? Yes. I'm really proud of both my parents because uh, they decided with their training, uh, my mom being a nurse and my dad uh, being a marine biologist, to move forward in uh, service to the government and to work for the public health department and then the public school system and uh, the EPA, respectively. So I grew up uh, sort of learning that and having it in my DNA, and I think that their satisfaction and their excitement about the things that they learned from their work and then how they were able to make an impact in their own circles and communities in New Jersey really inspired me to say, you know, how can I be of service and help? But uh, that's absolutely true. I grew up in part of my life on a houseboat, and that taught me a lot, too, about disease and uh, how to modify your disease based on uh, where you're living. Huh. What are some some aspects of living in a houseboat that most people don't appreciate? (laughs) Seasickness. Do you get tired (laughs) of fish? (laughs) Well, uh, you're... Yes, you're surrounded by uh, beautiful bodies of water, uh, in, typically, but in this respect, we were surrounded by uh, the waters in New Jersey, which during the 70s and the 80s were not that clean, unfortunately. The SS and, Love Canal or whatever. Exactly. So we were in the middle of a swamp uh, because my dad was doing his uh, research for his PhD on uh, sea urchins that uh, were basically on the border between salt water and fresh water. Um, and so with that, we learned a lot about how they responded to pollution. Uh, unfortunately, the waters were pretty polluted back then. But I unfortunately got asthma and pretty bad allergies to mold because the houseboat was made of wood and it was pretty humid in New Jersey. And so mold grows. And uh, so I learned at a very young age what it was like to have a lot of wheezing attacks to allergies. And so that inspired me, too, to make sure that I could use what I knew later on to try to help out in asthma and allergies. Wow. Well, we really can't wait to get to that. It sounds like in terms of, um, in addition to your parents inspiring you, you're also inspired by a great chemistry teacher in high school um, and then also decided in high school that maybe you were, that's when you first had a the tentative interest in medicine. Can you tell us about the sort of the, the, the folks you chatted with to develop this, uh, to, to get a sense of that, of that interest? Sure. I think like in all of life, and as you were mentioning with the book Range, you know, you you, you really are um, inspired by the, your mentors and you're given opportunities that we're very fortunate about in life. And uh, some of my mentors started in high school where I had wonderful political science teachers, an amazing chemistry teacher that really explained it so well, and uh, all of the students loved her. And because of that, a lot of us went into chemistry or biochemistry later on in college. So it really set the pace for how we can uh, move forward in life. So I'm very appreciative of those connections. 
So was it meaning, did it matter to you at all or was it meaningfully for you now later to have had a female mentor versus a male mentor? Uh, I, I really do think that that's important to have mentors in different ethnicities and different genders is key because people need role models and people of all, uh, from all different places and uh, ethnicities need to see that role models can occur in male and females and importantly is that to be tolerant of that and to see that people through their own education can then give to others and to educate others. So I think that having her as one of my mentors was fantastic and of course both men and uh, women mentors are fantastic but it's nice to see that diversity. I think it matters. Wow. So Lisa will strongly agree. She's uh, founded a program. Um, uh, C sweetener, yeah. Right. Um, which sort of which is a sort of focus on um, uh, on sort of helping pe- doing a better job of connecting people, uh, women, women in particular, with, with, with uh, mentors. mentors yeah, oh, great. Um, well, that's fantastic. So it, it sounds like uh, your household. It sounds like certainly had a lot of love, but money was tight. Um, and uh, so, how are you thinking about college? And make sure you work in this famous New Jersey governor school. To your answer. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I was 14, and my parents had both been farmers, and then, uh, you know, they had gotten scholarships to go to their uh, colleges um, to do and learn what they learned. And so I think that expectation was still ingrained in them. Um, and because they were government employees, you know, obviously they had chose not to receive large salaries, so it was expected that I move forward. So uh, in that light, it was also expected that if I did want to become a doctor, which I kind of knew at 14 that I really wanted to be one, um, I didn't have a car. And so um, my parents said, if you want to learn, you got to figure this out on your own. So I joined the ambulance squad. And I thought, great, this is a win-win. I could learn how to drive uh, and also learn what it's like to be uh, a caretaker in emergency clinician. So that's how um, I dealt with some of the financial um, limitations, perhaps. So your first car was literally an ambulance, Absolutely. Right? So I learned to drive on the highways <laughs> of New Jersey, uh, and that was a learning experience uh, via an ambulance. So again, I, I think this is all to say that when, when given limitations in life, you make them into opportunities and you move forward with that. Um, and then when I was a junior, uh, this same wonderful teacher that was my political science teacher um, had told me about the governor's school in New Jersey, and I was so grateful to be able to have the opportunity to apply, Uh, and it was for public schools in New Jersey. People were chosen from their high school and nominated, and then you could go for the summer and have a different... um, uh, educational sort of categories. In this particular school, it was called the the Global Governor School. So it was all about international relations and um, global issues that were surrounding the world at that point. In the 80s, a lot of this was the Cold War and nuclear armament. So the heads of the school um, were actually... Um, wonderful teachers, and they had gone to a school by the name of Haverford College, uh, the man had, 
And uh, when I got there, I learned all about colleges and how to apply for scholarships, as well as met some wonderful students from around New Jersey. And uh, it was a great place to be able to have discussions. And then you actually wound up at Haverford, um, and uh, you were in the first, uh, you were like the, the first women's, first class that had women there, which um, created some challenges when you when you arrived, right? In your uh, yeah, that's exactly. So I was very lucky. Um, this wonderful mentor again, where all these wonderful opportunities and people that were mentoring us and people that we meet along the way. Uh, I had basically decided then to apply to colleges, and Haverford was amazing. Really impressed me. Uh, was also had a, a wonderful uh, philosophy of Quakerism and consensus building and science. And so because of that, uh, I applied, got a scholarship. Uh, but I was one of the um, first women to get into Haverford, so the ratio was about 16 to 1, uh, men to female. So our uh, hallway um, was uh, was in the Quaker tradition, tradition uh, uh, using um, shared facilities, including the bathroom. And yeah, we had that at Berkeley, too, actually. <laughs> I don't think it was a Quaker tradition. I think it was a hippie tradition. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, in the uh, espousing open-mindedness and um, and sharing, that also included the fact that the curtains, uh, there were no curtains in the bathrooms for the showers. So my mother, the first day, was quick to go to the local Wawa's, buy a shower curtain, and that, and then <laughs> delegate one of the bathrooms for females and one of the bathrooms for males. Uh, and so that was uh, my first experience and my first day at Haverford. But ever since then, it was. Uh, quite a wonderful place to get educated and to learn science. And it seems like it really worked out. You wound up um, continuing your education in the MD-PhD program at Harvard, doing your PhD with the legendary chemist Chris Walsh, who listeners may remember from the Tectonics episode we did with Chris's daughter, Allison Curian, a distinguished clinical cancer geneticist, also at Stanford. Um, what, ma- Carrie, what made Chris Walsh so special, in, 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 again, in continuing the mentor uh, questions? Chris is a phenomenal person, and I remember many aspects about his leadership and his mentorship, uh, but I think some of those qualities that I think others um, have also commented on are, number one, he's he really is someone that demands excellent curiosity and intellectual um, uh, rigor, and because of that, he set standards that are were just organic. You wanted to learn. You wanted to be curious. You wanted to make sure that your experiments were set up in a way that you tested all possibilities and that you repeated it to make sure that if you had a hypothesis, that that hypothesis would be either um, proven or disproven and that it was fine to get negative data. He also espoused the fact that if something was negative and you prove that it was negative, that's fine. He didn't expect everything to be positive. That the most important aspect to some of his philosophical discussions with us as graduate students was that you were wed to your data, not necessarily to the hypothesis, that you have to be open-minded. Just as important as having ideas is getting rid of them, I think Francis Crick said. Yes, exactly. And that science favors the prepared mind. In my high school yearbook, Lisa. That was one of my high school yearbook quotes. That's great. Yeah, and then um, Chris was phenomenal at being able to incorporate um, and not be biased in any way towards men and women. You were a scientist, period. And and 
those types of non-biased discussions were really valued by someone like me who was early on in her training and making sure that I chose a mentor that really thought well of my work and that wanted to uh, mentor me and move me forward. So I think Chris really believed in people and believed in their ability to move forward and mentored them and spent a lot of time with the graduate students. And I also think that Chris is someone that looked at science as a tool, um, and I also love this comment and, and quote that is in uh, the Chicago um, uh, Science and Technology Museum, and it says, uh, science discerns the laws of nature and industry applies them to the needs of man. And so one of the things that Chris taught all of us early on is that it was okay to reach across the aisle and think about your science being applied to industry and uh, making an impact through applying to patents and making sure that your discoveries were uh, written in a way to uh, hopefully move discussions forward to the public, but then also how do we move this forward to industry in a um, in a non-conflict of interest issue, but also making sure that we understand that it is important to interact with industry if you need to make an impact. So, Carrie, we just uh, a couple weeks ago had David Altshuler on our show, uh, chief scientific officer at Vertex, and a you know classmate of Carrie's, I think. Oh, yes. Yes, exactly. Very, you know, eminent scientist. And we had a lengthy discussion uh, that makes me feel like I need to do a poll with every scientist we talk about now about, you know, the tension between doing science that's incremental to what's come before, things that there's some known uh, framework for versus something that's a true, you know, out of nowhere, out of the blue discovery. You know, and he was talking about how things that are sort of out of the blue discoveries are generally less um, well appreciated uh, in science and things that are just, you know, more developments of things that have come before. What do you think about that? I agree with David. I think that we need to think about the build of scientific discoveries, but also we need to be open-minded um, to encapsulate discoveries made in the past with what's moving forward in the future. I tell the students in my lab, for example, that uh, research is truly that. It's re and search. It's not just about searching, but you have to repeat it and, uh, and to be able to see whether or not it's uh, valid. Uh, but I think that David's point is a good one. Uh, and I also think that some of the things that I'm seeing in science now, oftentimes we will uh, repeat the past not knowing that something was already tested or definitively um, decided upon. So I think we need to always look historically in science to be able to move and make progress. But I also think that science should be and hopefully will be at the core of many discussions in the future politically as well as at um, the educational level because I think science is something that has high integrity and that we need to use that approach for potentially other aspects in how we work with uh, humans and society. So so let me ask you about going back to your own training um, and sort of, you know, how, your, how you've been thinking about things. You were, you know, you, you did your MD-PhD. You were planning to continue your training in pediatrics at children's and, and become a, a pediatric um, 
cancer doctor, going to pediatric chemonc, but you wound up feeling unsure about spending a career in pediatric oncology, and at the same time, you, you were being drawn into some biotech research. Can you tell us both about what, what some of the reservations you had about the PD chemonc, and then also what was um, interesting about their, some help us understand the biotech experiences you were getting? Well, sure. That's, it's really great, because it segues into your previous comment about a lot of people uh, maybe in their careers, they don't necessarily stay on quote-unquote target and that we are an amalgamation of all of our mentoring and opportunities that came along the way. And I think for me, I've always had kind of an open-door policy where you get trained, you want to keep an open mind, and you don't want to have any regrets or resent what you've done in the past. And I think for future people to be able to do the best they can and excel in any given um, area. In the area of Hemonc that I originally went in, I think what was sad for me to see, which is, again, different now, uh, 30 years later, is that many of the things that we were using in our armamentarium to fight the cancer had such dramatic side effects that they wound up uh, causing so high morbidity and mortality rates or death in the person that it made me be inspired to think about, well, how can you work in industry? It's something better. How can we provide better therapies that don't have side effects that could kill someone? And I think for kids, it especially, at least for me personally, it was very hard to see um, kids uh, die early uh, and, and outlive their parents. That was tough for me to take emotionally. And so with that, I tried to gather strength and look at um, biotechnology. And at the same time, I got in a call from a company called Biogen, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time, and they were looking for a director of their medical development program for a really new innovative therapy um, that was used for uh, transplantation and increasing immune tolerance in diseases that were autoimmune. And so that got me really excited about crossing over the river, as it were, literally and figuratively, and, um, and going to industry to think about applying uh, a new drug to cure disease. So then what's so interesting about this is you, you, know, you, you worked a bit uh, pretty intensively um, and very helpfully, it sounds like, with Biogen um, in Boston. Um, uh, your, um, uh, your husband is also uh, someone actually uh, I knew, a, a neurosurgeon. Um, it was MGH. And um, then you, your, your family unit decided um, uh, to leave Boston and go out to California in the middle of like a lot of different training programs and activities. Could you tell us not only how you wound up going to California, but how this inflected, again, your career evolution? Because it's so interesting. Yeah, I think that we can't plan everything in life, obviously, and that happens every day. But um, importantly is that my husband, who is really the wind beneath my wings and also a person that um, espouses science and and clinical medicine, and so we are both kind of these quote-unquote translational scientists. So he was doing his uh, rotations as well as uh, residency training at the Mass General de Brigham in Boston, and his parents got ill, and we decided to move all together and take care of them uh, in um, California. Uh, and so that was, you're right, uh, a, a big difference. Uh, and I had never been to California. I'm native New Jersey, East Coast person. Um, and so to make that move 
I I basically um, embraced it, and my husband luckily had also been in California for about four years, so he kind of knew the area. So we decided to um, move from Boston. We had one child at the time and start this quote-unquote new life. Luckily, he was able to transfer his chief residency to Stanford, and someone replaced him at Stanford to go to the Mass General Brigham Program. So I was very lucky that the residency programs allowed us to do that. And then I um, moved forward in uh, biotech, but in doing so, it also, like anything in life, when, when a new environment comes up or you're move, there's a flexion point in your um, in your history where you take this time to think about where you're going in life. And so I think this move also allowed me to be a little self-introspective and to say, where do I want to go? Where do I want to be in, when I'm 65 years old? And so I thought long and hard about that, and I really missed patient care, and I missed that opportunity of running a laboratory. So I decided to retrain and uh, retrain in allergy and immunology. So I was 37 at the time and um, and a junior resident. So basically I was about 10 years older than the typical resident, but that was fine. I mean, the typical story for something like that, who we had in our training class, were folks who were like completely trained, like in India, for example, and then they come, or or in or in um, the UK, uh, like Callum, um, and then they sort of have to come and kind of like go through all the training. I remember we had uh, some fantastic people in our class who were trained as cardiologists or oncologists, and they sort of had to start from the beginning. And it's uh, I, I I can't even imagine going going through that. And it sounds like there was a particularly transformative clinical experience you had that played a key role in shaping your career direction. Can you tell us about your experience with a child with a severe milk allergy? Yeah. So I was retraining in allergy immunology. I met one of my wonderful mentors, Dale Ametsu, who was also MD-PhD, also a translational scientist. Um, and he uh, was wonderful in retraining me. And I remember I was a second-year uh, fellow and... Um, thinking about uh, applying what I knew about allergy and asthma to immunology and asthma in particular. But then one day we were on the intensive care unit. We were consulting for a little boy that unfortunately had uh, had a milk allergy and um, had mistakenly drank cow's milk from the refrigerator that he thought was soy milk, but it was his sister's milk. And he drank it that previous night, and he had a terrible anaphylactic reaction, and unfortunately the parents um, had not gotten an update on their epinephrine pen for him, so he was uh, much older and weighed uh, more, and so when they tried to use uh, an epinephrine injectable device, uh, it didn't work, and uh, he unfortunately, uh, when the ambulance arrived, he couldn't breathe, and so uh, at the time that we came to consult for him on the intensive care unit, he was being considered as an organ donor. And uh, luckily, his his family was generous in that note, and he became an organ donor. And, um, and now I take care of his recipient of his liver, who now has a milk allergy. Uh, so it's really fascinating, and it's a tragic, tragic story. Yeah. But that's crazy that the recipient of the liver also got the same incredibly rare allergy from 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 the liver transplant. I'd never heard of that. That just sounds that that, that that sounds so bizarre. Yeah. So David, this is the interesting part about science, right? This this 
this tragic event inspired me to think about, okay, we need to understand the etiology of food allergy and the tragedy of food allergy and how to treat this and how to prevent it so it never happens again for families like this or for this little boy. But then the intriguing aspect was, well, how did the recipient get the food allergy when the recipient otherwise had no food allergies? And why did it start and how do we help that process? So it then I started doing research, and it is true that in uh, children with liver transplants in particular, they uh, can get the food allergy from their donor. And so, again, this all brings us back to how we trained and not letting any particular question go and to frame our research around these inspirational events that have happened to patients and families to be able to make sure they don't happen again or to make sure that we can answer those questions through translational research. It's interesting, you know, given what's going on now in the health policy arena and the payments and the rest and, and the difficulty that that parents are having paying for epinephrine pens and keeping them around. I wonder how much that's affecting your work in the clinic, what you see that is playing out on the, you know, the pharmaceutical payment and, you know, reimbursement field. Are you seeing that affect patients in real life in a profound kind of way or not so much? Uh, yeah, I think I am. It's, uh, I I think that it has a profound um, consequence, and I do believe that we need to sort of think ahead. What do you think? It would seem logically to me that if people can't afford to keep you know replacing and keeping up the epinephrine, that it would result in more people, more kids showing up in the ER. Yeah. Um, you know, and I I think that you know when you think about where government. Um, on the one hand, I, you know, from my standpoint, you know, I believe in the market. The market should be the market, and you can, you know, get prices, you, know, you get the price you can bear. But on the other hand, there's some public health interests that should, I think, overrule some of those conditions, and you know, where 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 you know price impact should be felt, perhaps, is in some of these types of cases. Yeah. So I think that intersection of policy and public health. This is one of the clear examples to me of where that needs to be thought about. I mean, the really, idea of really somebody well. needing a life-saving yeah. medicine so they don't wind up in the sit- in an unimaginable situation. Yeah, I and mean, this is not like a $2 million cancer right. therapy. This is like something that used to be cheap and now is expensive and should be easily accessible and now is hard. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad that now there are other uh, companies on the market so that there's some competitive pricing. But even that... It's extraordinary that I have patients that cannot afford an EpiPen. There's a horrible story where uh, a mom out of Philadelphia had five kids driving on the turnpike in New Jersey, uh, and uh, one of her child mistakenly ate a peanut, and um, and he passed away in the back of the car because she wasn't able to get her refill on her EpiPen earlier that week because the price was too high. So all of these things, I agree with you, lead to to tragedies that could have been prevented with the, with the ability to get access to health care or the ability to get access to needed medicines. And I'm hoping that, you know, with the Affordable Care Act, I think it helps so many people. And I'm hoping that companies will be responsible and accountable to these life-saving medicines. Um, there are some companies now that are offering compassionate use for EpiPens. We have a program where we're giving it for free to the underserved populations in Harlem and and uh, Chicago, but but that's just you know sort of 
here and there. I think it's important to establish policies for public health needs. And unfortunately, the public health issue in food allergy is not going away. One in 12.5 children have a doctor's diagnosis of food allergy, and one in 10 adults now have a doctor's diagnosis of food allergy. So unfortunately, this isn't going to go away. We need to understand the science behind it. I wanted to ask you about that because you've become a real, you're a real leader um, globally in the food allergy community, from the basic research to clinical care, um, and your work on desensitizing children to multiple allergens at once has been widely cited. Um, I was going to ask you about what you see as the most interesting learnings, but maybe to, 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 you know, to sort of share what do you think is a prevalent, are we getting better at diagnosing it, or is the prevalence actually increasing? And what one or two points do you wish people would better understand about um, children and food allergies? Yeah, it's a great question. So usually I like to start with, you know, how is the disease um, being caused in the first place and why is this increasing compared to when we were all growing up where, you know, we could eat peanut butter and it wasn't a big issue. And I think it's sort of multifactorial. I think we are in a different planet than we used to be. People haven't grown up on farms so that people don't get exposed to the same amount of microbes or dirt. That's not to say you should, you know, roll around in tetanus or botulism, but most importantly is uh, that you should make sure that you get your vaccines, make sure that you take the antibiotics that the doctor gives you, but that within that we need to counter some of the effects um, that we've had on the, the planet. And so to eat good, diverse diets early and often for kids, it used to be thought that kids should avoid peanuts and eggs and milk up until about two. But now that guideline has gone completely a 180-degree turn, and now we actually need to diversify the diet, and we should be giving infants small amounts of all these proteins early and often in their gut because we know that through the gut, uh, you can tolerate uh, your body to those food allergens. So I like to say in the mantra, through the skin, allergies begin, through the gut, allergies can stay quiet. And with that, uh, we think that the skin is one of those openings to allergic inflammation. So there is more and more eczema now, more and more what we call sort of dry skin in infants. And so through that, even if you're exposed to small amounts of uh, allergens in the air, both environmental like cat, dog, or um, or, uh, or pollen or food, those those small amounts of proteins get on your skin and can activate your allergic uh, pathways if you have eczema. So people are learning, have learned a lot about the role of vitamin D, the role of dry skin, the role of diet, the role of dirt. I call those the four Ds uh, for what is causing uh, food allergy or what's leading to the increase in food allergy in our society. We're, we certainly have all the answers yet. So at least we have a little bit in our back pocket in terms of what we could do to prevent disease. Uh, but then in terms of your question about curing disease that's already started, we are working very hard. There are about 15 companies in this space now. The FDA, for the first time, will consider an application this week even. So your timing of the podcast couldn't be better. Uh, because September 13th, the advisory uh, committee for the FDA will meet and uh, hopefully approve for the first time a peanut flour to desensitize patients with uh, peanut allergy. And so this types of methodology, as well as other companies, are really moving the field forward to try to think about cures and permanent cures. 
So let me ask you a final topic, um, uh, because I know we're out of time, but I'm I'm just too curious not to ask. So because of your cross-training, I kind of get the sense that you have more um, facility than most in understanding the complementary strengths and limitations of both academia and industry, a topic that kind of, that often can just get so, almost too fraught for discussion. Um, How... How do you sort of see the space of, um, you know, having spent time in, in academia, spent time in industry, spent time with a mentor who encourages translation, um, return to academia, but work, you know, with a range of companies? What, what are your thoughts as someone who's been on all sides of this, of what, of what can be done concretely and not just good intentions to accelerate translation? And how can we get more people like you? Well, first of all, I, I think there are a lot of incredibly talented people, and and um, and importantly, is if it is their choice and if they want, they can make those translations. I feel very fortunate to work at uh, places like Stanford, where uh, there is um, an ease uh, by which you can apply what you learn in the laboratory to be able to take it forward and license it out and start companies or to license it to larger companies to apply uh, to the needs of man. Um, uh, But I think that as we look forward to the future, this needs to be done more and more, that as we as scientists, as we think about things that occur in our lab and we want to prove something rigorously, to be able to make sure that we talk about it to the public, that we relay the information in a way that can be interpreted by uh, the lay public, that's that's not um, difficult to understand, but that also people see why we're doing that. And it's really about that why. Why did we do that research to be able to make an impact in people eventually and to try to understand different things? And then in the avenue of translating that to industry, to early on discuss and have cooperative meetings with industry so that industry can see uh, what uh, the academics are doing, so that it's not a wall between the two um, institutions, as it were. And at Stanford, what we do is we have these BioX meetings, and I know they've applied them in different institutions now, where uh, weekly we, we will meet uh, with VCs, with um, industry representatives, with the academics to be able to uh, cooperate with each other in programs. So that's worked out really well. Um, and, you know, for me personally, I, I love uh, teaching and I love doing research. And so to have that ability as a curious um, academician and a professor at Stanford, uh, I feel is such a, an honor and a privilege that I feel very grateful that we have these capacities to reach across the aisle, work with industry, work with public policymakers, and we need to do more of it. That's wonderful. I mean, it's not typical, right? I mean, people are so compartmentalized oftentimes, so it's wonderful to hear that diversity of thinking and how to, you know, so people inspiring. can collaborate together to really make a difference. Thank you so much, Kari, for taking the time and uh, joining us today. Well, thank you. She's fantastic. Yeah, she's great. She? I liked her a lot. You know, sort of, I mean, it's funny because she's sort of probably among the least pretentious people you could ever meet. Yeah. And yet she, you know, has done so much and is doing so much and really is living at the intersection Um and wonderful, compassionate clinician and doing great research, really translational in every sense of the word. So just such an inspiring role model for people of all genders, Lisa. 
yeah, I, I really enjoyed listening to her. It was, um, it was quite inspiring. And, you know, and I think, you know, to her point that oftentimes people don't think about these food allergies as a real life-threatening disease because so many people don't ever see it, right? But when you see it, it's terrifying. And I know my, my own, uh, you know, niece, um, has uh, a nut allergy and you know she's had some near misses you know and it's really scary to think about you know and her and they have every sort of awareness they always have the epinephrine around her dad's an EMT you know um, and a police officer so he knows you know about how to handle emergency situation and yet you know, there have been moments that have been really frightening. And it's so interesting because, you know, at schools, there's so much awareness on the one hand that, like, you can easily get sort of, like, allergy fatigue, where it's mm-hmm. like, ugh, especially, you know, like, what what is all of this? And then you hear these stories where it's like, for the folks who really are are so acutely afflicted, mm-hmm. I mean, how terrifying, like, everything is, is like one brush with something away. Well, like, you go on an airplane and they don't give out peanuts anymore a lot of the time because of this. And, you know, I know... Even myself, you know, have gone like, oh, come on, you know, but, right. but but I get it. I mean, I really, you know, can you imagine how scary that is for the family who's on a flight and, you know, that's what's hanging around in the air. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was um, uh, terrific to, to have her. So um, uh, back to the more mundane, please remember, but it's helpful to rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow the wonderful Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that includes a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in scenic Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Take care. Hasta la vista.